everybody. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Watch the Road podcast, where I put a microphone in my car and I talk to you while I'm commuting to and from Kung Fu. And in this beautiful and really warm weather, there will be a whole lot of uh, blood and lots of sweat. All right, so this episode should be uh, crazy. All kinds of madness has occurred. Namely, I encountered the Serica. And I don't know if I mentioned it. I think I might have in the previous episode. But since then, I have gone crazy. I've gone after it. And I bought one. And it's not going to be here till like October, I think. Because it's a pre-order and I totally had to have missed the 200 pieces that would arrive in August. That was infuriatingly slow that whole process I had a watch up for sale that I'll be talking about here shortly and that piece took a lot longer than I thought it would to sell and when it did sell it took forever for the money to show up in my account as well as some other money that I transferred transferred there sorry so I was sitting there for days like just obsessively watching the account waiting for the money to show up one of the uh, amounts showed up but it wasn't enough to get the watch after the crazy shipping cost so I had to wait for the other one and that whole time just knowing that there is absolutely no way I'm getting in on the August shipping so it is going to be such a long wait I don't think I've ever ordered anything that I've had to wait this long for. I mean, months. I'm going to be waiting months for it. But that's only one of the crazy things that's been happening lately uh, in regards to my watch collection and all of that stuff. Before I really dive in, though, I suppose I ought to talk about what is on my wrist today. I am wearing the Hamilton Khaki Field. And even though this watch is larger than I would prefer, it is a very elegantly shaped case and it looks great. And field watches are perfect for the blue sky that's overhead and the short sleeve t-shirt that I'm wearing. So as I mentioned, the Serica happened. I recently sold the C65 Trident. I was sad to do so, but I just never wore it because as brilliant as it was, it had a couple things that I didn't like about it. And those were enough for me to pass it by as I was going through my watches in the watch box, more often than not. And so it really needed a home where it would get a decent amount of wrist time. So sadly, I let that piece go. And the crazy thing is, I had one dive watch after that. And I decided that that was my keeper. It gets more wrist time than the CW got. And that watch was the Baltic. And it's a no date, it's sub 40 millimeters, perfect. Like that is just the perfect watch. The perfect dive watch, that is. And uh, so my plan was to have a one dive watch collection um, with a bunch of dress watches and field watches and other styles. But one dive watch should be good. And then, uh, as I mentioned, the Serica happened. The 5303, once I saw that, um, it took a few days 
for that seed to germinate. But once I saw that watch, within a day or two, I was obsessing about it. I absolutely love everything about the aesthetics of that watch. I'm not a big fan of arrow hands, and this one has an arrow hours hand, but it's kind of in keeping with sort of a vintage vibe, and it's really well done. It's nice and uh, sharp. It's not kind of roundy um, and sort of phallic looking like some hands can be. This one is nice and crisp, and I think in time it might actually grow on me. I don't think it'll be a scenario like the CW where it keeps me from wearing it. The bezel is so amazing. It's two-tone, so it's got like a white or a silver uh, ring on the inside, and it serves two purposes. It's a dual-purpose bezel. The outer side is just a standard dive bezel, and the inside, and I, of course I could be swapping those and getting that wrong since I can't look at one as I'm talking about it, but the inside one is actually GMT. So you can track a different time zone or you could use it as a dive timer or whatever. But for me, more importantly, it looks amazing. So I rarely use, actually use bezels. Uh, they're more of an aesthetics thing when I have a dive style watch or a dive watch. But that bezel just looks absolutely amazing. Uh, the dial is so cool. Total atomic age um, with those indicators on there. Just totally Jetsons. And I think I mentioned all of this in my previous episode, so I apologize if that all is redundant. But all of these things were in my head, and I was obsessing about the watch. Uh, even the mesh bracelet and how it's kind of integrated with the, uh, the hinge piece to it. Even that was like intriguing to me. And so I did the crazy. I sold the Baltic after going off about how great it was, after doing reviews about it, convincing people out there how awesome it was. Just by doing a review, people saw that review and ended up buying a Baltic for themselves. And I don't have a change of mind on the Baltic. I still think it's a brilliant dive watch and the crystal that it has on there is phenomenal and for the time being it'll be the watch that graces the cover of this podcast because it's just awesome but the Serica just was on my mind and so I let the Baltic go and I got the Serica and that was the watch that helped fund it and so what's really wild is at this point in time I do not own a single dive style or dive watch at all. I own a CWC G10 that has a 200 meters of water resistance. So I do have a watch that I can wear in water. And actually the Smiths has, I believe, 200 meters also. So I have watches that I can wear in water, but I don't have any dive style watches, whether they're truly dive watches or not, which is so weird. This is the first time that that's been the case since I started collecting watches in earnest. Yes, I have one on the way, but it's not going to be here till October. So that kind of got me thinking about dive watches in general. And I think tonight I'll probably do a video on just pondering this thing and realizing that in my collection, dive watches are the one area of my collection that's really volatile. 
most of the other uh, styles of watches are pretty, it, it's pretty calm. There's not a whole lot of churn there. Um, I've added the max build of the collection, but other dress watches are sitting pretty comfortably. Even the Timex Marlins that I own are probably going to be sitting there in my collection for a long time to come and getting a decent amount of wrist time. The Nomos isn't going anywhere. The Stova isn't going anywhere. As far as field watches go, the, the watch that I'm wearing now, the Hamilton Khaki Field, might go at some point because like the C65 Trident, oftentimes I actually go for the smaller options that I have. So if I'm in a field watch mood, oftentimes it'll be the CWC that I go for instead of the Hamilton Khaki. But this watch looks so great that sometimes, like today, I kind of force myself to choose it over the CWC. And it, it looks brilliant. So even though it's a little bit lower in the, in the uh, food chain of my collection, it's fairly comfortable. But when it comes to dive watches, it's, it's been completely fluid. I've, there hasn't been a dive watch yet that I've been completely married to or that has a really um, stable place in my collection. Like when I think back over my uh, previous watches that I've had, I began collecting in earnest with a Citizen Pro Diver EcoDrive. And I loved that watch. And I ended up banging up its case pretty bad. So ridiculously, I bought another one just like it. And even more ridiculously, that one got knocked on a stone countertop and so um, it put a decent scrape on the crystal there. And I think that might have kind of ruined it for me. That and I ended up getting an SKX007. And that was when I realized exactly what mechanical watches were. Prior to that, my brain uh, thought everything was battery related, period, right? You have your eco drive that charges a battery from sunlight. I'm thinking that automatic watches, surely they just use your movement to charge a battery, right? And so it was a shock to me when the very next day I wake up and the SKX007 is already dead, is already asleep on the nightstand um, because I didn't wear it very much the day before and it wasn't fully wound. But anyway, uh, that got me kind of expanding into mechanical watches and stuff. And so Shortly after that, the favorite dive watch that I had, the Citizen Eco Drives, those went away. And then I ended up going for an Armida because it was bigger. And at that point in time, the SKX was too small for me. So the SKX went away. And I had the Armida for a while, but I wanted something with more uh, water resistance to it because, I don't know, ridiculous reasons. And... So I ended up going for the Genoa, the Ocean Rover, um, no date, uh, vintage mill sub style dive watch. And honestly, if, if Genoa wasn't such a seedy company, I probably would still own that watch. 
but after reading the huge expose on just how bad it was and just being tired of every time I posted pictures of it, having to hear about how bad the brand was every single time and you know the the final straw was the expose and the great research paper that was done on it i don't recall what forum i found that in or exactly the title of it or anything but if you uh, do some hunting you should be able to find it and it's really bad um because i had thought that you know, fine, this guy was making, in my brain, I'm picturing this guy making fakes for his buddies and honing his skills and then starting a legitimate company and leaving all of that behind in the murky, shameful past. No, no, it's still, yeah, basically, I, no wonder why it was such a great watch because it was one of, it was made with, my understanding is the case is made with some of the actual components that were still being sold by that individual as Rolex fakes and some of the best out there. So the Genoa uh, truly was like having a vintage mill sub Rolex. And uh, so once I found out exactly how seedy all that was, that watch got sold. And then I got the C65 Trident and then I got the Baltic. So that is the tumultuous dive watch past. And somewhere in there was the GSAR as well, um, which we might as well include in there um, because it truly was a dive watch. Um, I guess I think of it almost like a military watch, but it had the full on dive aesthetics and full water resistance and actually met the requirements of being a dive watch better than any that I've owned yet. Um, but yeah, it's crazy how volatile dive watches are in my collection. So hopefully the Serica will be the dive watch that actually stays around. So we'll find out as soon as the long wait is over. Uh, so that, that's one crazy thing. And another that's pretty wild is I actually did end up putting the Malvern up for sale. It hasn't gone yet, but it has a lot of interest. And when that goes, uh, I'm back down to one Christopher Ward again. At one point I had three of them and was tempted by others. And who knows how many Christopher Wards I would have ended up with. But now I'm down to one and that one isn't even in my possession. Um, because I had to send the Sandhurst back for the winding issue that apparently is not um, uncommon or not unheard of, I guess, in that particular Salida movement. So it's, but it's been gone for quite a while now. Uh, I think a month and a half. I'll have to check the date. So this uh, servicing is taking a decent amount of time, but uh, I currently have zero Christopher Ward's in my watch box and that's just wild to me as well and who knows when the Sandhurst comes back I'm not sure how stable its position in the collection is either uh, one because as you can clearly tell I'm kind of slimming down the collection a bit and two I have the Smiths so it kind of feels a little bit redundant 
and the Smiths has a much more classic um, size to it. It doesn't seem quite as thick, even though they probably are about the same. For some reason, the Sandhurst has always felt kind of th thick and bulky to me. I'm not sure exactly why. It might be my unfair um, assumption that it would play off as being thinner than it is, like the C65 Trident did. That watch always looked thinner to me than it actually was. Just the shape of the bezel, the shape of the case and everything. And I thought that the Sandhurst would be that way, but it really isn't. It almost works the opposite with that watch. It's, uh, what, 38 millimeters? And I think that that kind of makes it look thicker. Um, because it does have a that Christopher Ward case shape, you know, kind of like the C65 did. But at over 41, I think that helped to make it look thinner um, just by the sheer, you know, the width of the case. But uh, yeah, so I may not have any Christopher Wards um, in the near future, which is just kind of crazy to me. There are Christopher Ward pieces that I still like. I love their Sapphire, uh, their C60 Sapphires. Um, those are just amazing. And the compressors look really fun. Uh, but yeah, I, as much as I still love Christopher Ward, I think maybe my tastes have changed. It's so wild how that happens. Oftentimes, in my case, it happens depending on watches that I buy. So I'll buy a certain watch and that will completely change my perspective on other watches. And uh, so I'm guessing that like the Smiths contributed to that as well as some of the really tiny um, vintage styled dress watches like the Timex Marlins that truly look and feel and seem vintage. And I think, um, yeah, just in general, I kind of went even smaller than uh, I was at the time that I first bought the Sandhurst and had interest in other Christopher Ward pieces, like the Malvern, which is up for sale. Man, that watch is so brilliant looking. I, I really am sad to be letting it go, but it just, it's so big in, in my mind. I mean, I think that a vast majority of people would really appreciate it. I think it's 39 millimeters, but I'm spoiled by my 36 millimeter pieces and stuff. So whenever I put that on, it looks a little plattery to me. Sorry about the beeping there. I was backing up. Now, I'm not sure if I brought this up in a previous podcast. If so, this has been a problem for a very long time. But I am currently in Instagram jail. I have no idea what behavior they think um, they flagged me for. I'm assuming that it's their protection against uh, spam and bots and whatnot. But I really don't do anything crazy there. I don't go through and do a rapid fire machine gun likes or anything like that and I don't do a ton of commenting I seriously just casually scroll through my feed and offer people feedback um, not in a really quick way but 
If I see a picture that looks really cool, I'll like it. Maybe I'll leave a comment. Awesome shot, man. Blah, blah, blah. Just normal behavior that surely anyone on that platform is doing. Uh, the only thing I can think of that maybe got my account flagged, but if so, it was flagged way after I had actually done it. And that is when I very, when I first joined Instagram, I'd never really used it, so I had no idea what I was doing. And my plan was to just go through and like or follow all of the watch nerd accounts that I could find there. So I would just go through and follow, 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 follow all the different watch nerd accounts. And so tons of them thinking that if even just a fraction of these people follow me back, then I'll have a decent start um, and a decent um, community to, um, you know, rapidly grown community sort of. But I've never gone through and done massive unfollows or anything. And all of the accounts that I follow are pertinent to my own posts and everything. In fact, uh, there have been a few times where I have gone through to try and do some cleanup there, and it's really tough to actually pick counts to unfollow because they're all great. So what I've done is I've gone through and looked for accounts that appear to be kind of inactive or they don't really have a whole lot of posts or anything, and that those are the only ones that I've been able to unfollow, you know, because all the rest are just really cool accounts. They're great watch shots and stuff, or I know the person, there's no way I'm not, you know, going to unfollow them. But it's interesting, I've known that Instagram is my favorite social media platform for a while now, but what I didn't realize was just how much interaction that I've done and how many people I actually know on the platform and really like and like interacting with. Until now, now that I'm blocked, all I can do is just look at their stuff. I can't leave any comments or likes or anything. It's really infuriating. It's frustrating. Uh, I can still post pictures there, but I feel like a jerk not being able to give anyone else support there. Unless they comment on my stuff, and then I can then I can like that or respond to that in a comment. I can still send messages to people, but I can't interact with their feed in any way, shape, or form. I've submitted numerous report a problem, um, inquiries, and stuff, and it's just maddening. You know, it's it's frustrating that these platforms, at least Instagram will do that without any kind of notice or explanation of why their rationale behind them doing it. And there's really no, you have zero recourse. I've heard of other people submitting, you know, reporting it as a problem and their account is restored, but it has been weeks and surely my behavior there isn't bad enough to warrant being blocked for weeks. We're not talking just a 24-hour or, you know, like maybe I went crazy and they blocked my account for 24 hours and then it's restored. No, it's still blocked. And I've submitted multiple times and just, you, there's no way you're ever going to be in touch with a human being. It's this huge monolith way off in the distance. Uh, it's just super frustrating. And 
what makes it even more frustrating is that I have, I'm on all the social media platforms because that was one of my strategies was I'm sharing all of my stuff amongst all of them. And what's sad is all the people that I know on Instagram, so far, I don't really see them anywhere else. There's a couple of friends that are on Twitter, but I've tried searching for some of the people that I know on Instagram and I can't find them. And uh, my advice for social media stuff is to diversify. Like you hear with all the financial commercials, diversify because there's been a lot of talk about the power that these companies have and the control they have but that's always in light of serious things you know politics or irritating stuff or whatever but they truly do have crazy amounts of power because I'm just some guy posting harmless pictures of watches all day and talking to other watch nerds and all I'm trying to do is build a community, you know, uh, be a part of a community of people who are, who love watches and I'm just trying to grow a community there. I'm not spamming people or anything. I just put my info in my posts. Um, I'm not messaging people with links to whatever site or videos I put out, none of that stuff. I just post photos to my feed and, uh, yeah, it's just crazy. So yeah, even as just a harmless watch nerd, uh, these social media accounts can silence you essentially, or in my case, keep you from interacting. They can silence you, or in my case, prevent you from interacting with your friends that you've met on that platform. So, yeah, I, as best I can, I'm going to try and not be so stuck on one particular platform. Maybe I'll spend, um, maybe I'll kind of just kind of circulate. So I'll spend more time on Twitter for a while and get to know people there. And then I'll move on to LinkedIn and spend some time getting to know people better there. And just kind of di diversify myself. That way, if one of these accounts for whatever reason, uh, decides that my account's a bot account or spam account, um, I can chat with people on other accounts while I'm trying to get that restored there. But of course, then again, this is the first time this has happened to me I'm in all my social media stuff. I haven't been locked out with any other account but this one, which makes it even more frustrating because it's my favorite feed with all of my favorite people on there. <laughs> so, uh, craziness. I recently had the Caliper View for sale on eBay, and after it had been on there for weeks and weeks and weeks, I took down the listing, and that got me thinking about affordable watches. And I, the Caliper View actually was, I don't know if I would really call it affordable, um, it's, it's entry level. That's for sure. I think it was like three or $400, but I mean, it wasn't like $100 or a $200 watch. Um, but definitely not a mid tier or it's totally entry level. So I'm going to describe it as affordable. Um, 
but it got me thinking about affordable watches because you'll hear people raving about them because, you know, you don't pay a ton and you get a decent watch that you can wear all the time. Maybe you can beat it up, just use it as a tool watch, a beater, whatever. So yeah, one thing that the Caliper View got me thinking about is with affordable watches, I've had plenty of watches where if you go to sell them, you know you're gonna be eating about half the cost. And so if we're talking a watch that's like, if we're talking a watch that's like $800, um, maybe $1,000, then you can still make enough money to where it's worth the effort and the fees and the shipping and stuff. But bear in mind when you buy affordable watches, like the Caliper View where it's like three or $400 if I remember correctly, you're probably not gonna get enough to even really make it worth it. Um, like it was getting to the point to where in order to get in order to get the watch sold, I would have to drop it down to a price so low that it just isn't even worth it, you know, might as well just have it sitting on a shelf forever rather than get what, I don't know, $40 after all the shipping and fees. So uh, bear in mind, like even if you're not a watch flipper, and I'm really not, I go through phases of kind of cleaning out the collection a bit. Um, but I don't, I don't buy watches thinking, really thinking that later on I'm going to sell it. But it is nice to be able to do that. Um, and when you buy watches that are so cheap, uh, maybe by brands that aren't well, I mean, if it's a brand that's known, if you buy like a Timex Marlin or something, you might get a decent amount for that because the name is known. But if you buy watches from brands that aren't so known or there are certain models that aren't so known, you might not be able to sell it for anything worth the effort. Um, and that definitely, the caliber view definitely follows that, falls under that category. And that watch just will never sell. So I'd have to either just give it to somebody or just have it sit on the shelf. So I took down that listing and it's, I'll just hang on to it. Um, eventually I'll get it a tapered Milanese strap so it doesn't look so huge uh, because that watch is pretty small. I think it's like 38 millimeters. It's really thick though, but it has 22 millimeter lugs, which is just craziness. And so it ships on a non-tapered Milanese strap. And so when you're wearing that watch, the strap looks way too big for the watch. So maybe I'll just get a tapered Milanese and when I'm feeling crazy, I'll dig out the caliper view and wear that. But yeah, bear that in mind if you buy more affordable watches. You're, you may not be able to flip them ever. You may just have to give them away. Um, when you go to clean up your collection a little bit. One thing that was surprising to me as I was drooling over the Serica forever before uh, pulling the trigger on it was the movement inside there. So it is the Newton movement, which I had never heard of. And what I found interesting is, is one, the brand that that movement is, is also completely new to me. I, 
honestly, I have not encountered it in any of my readings or anything. The brand Soprod, never heard of it. And uh, it's interesting to me that the Newton is a brand new movement, a 2020 movement apparently. And it's on par with the popular Etta, what is it, 20, 28, 20, 2824, or the Salita um, uh, SW200. Um, so it, it'll be interesting when the Serica arrives and I get to experience that. A brand new movement for from 2020, the year of horror. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it performs. And it's kind of cool uh, that there's a brand out there actively making movements and supplying them to other people. You know, so there's more options, right? There's Salita, there's uh, Miota. What else is there? Ed has been tightening up their stuff, right? So, oh, and according to uh, some of uh, my favorite podcasts, um, in their discussions of Seagull. I think they were saying that Seagull produces like the most movements of any brand in the entire world. Um, so there's another one, but always cool to me to hear about brands that provide movements for other companies. That way, you know, the startups and the micros have options to choose from. And, uh, Especially when those options are on par with some of the great movements out there like the Etta and the Salita and stuff. So, so that's pretty cool. I've had the Max Bill for a little while now. And I have to say I am still completely impressed by it. Absolutely amazing. If you've not encountered a Max Bill and you like Bauhaus style watches or dress watches fun vintage dress watches you need to get a max bill uh, the one that I bought if you haven't heard uh, previous episodes where I discuss it the max bill that I own is the tiny guy so it's like really mid-century style it's the 34 millimeter I swapped out the crystal for the acrylic one which I don't regret that crystal looks absolutely phenomenal and it just, that watch is so crazy. It's so unique. And it's crazy that a watch that's pretty affordable, I mean, if you don't swap out the crystal, I think it's like $800. So we're talking a watch that's under a thousand and it really can stand up beside the likes of my Nomos Orion. Um, the You can tell that the Orion is you know, twice as much as the max bill, just when you're mostly when you're using it, when you're winding it and stuff, it feels like it's price point for sure. Uh, but as far as aesthetics go and just the overall experience of wearing that watch, the max bill is right up there neck and neck. Um, and in fact, with the, the fun and really vintage look of that watch, I enjoy it even more. The Orion is perfect as a full-blown dress watch, but the Max Bill is just so much fun that um, it still is getting a ton of wrist time. I'm, I'm still in sort of the more passive mode of a honeymoon with it, but definitely still in a honeymoon phase with the Max Bill. 
It is absolutely phenomenal and I totally recommend it. And you have size options. I don't know if there is uh, any that are over 40 millimeters, but you can get the 34 millimeter or you can go for 40 for sure. And there's white dial, the black dial, date, no date. You have options. It's really cool. So definitely check out the Max Bill if that's your if your style is dress watches and whatnot. Um, but I have arrived at my destination. It's been great talking with you all, or talking at you, I suppose. And I look forward to doing the next podcast. Ooh.